0: Listen to this conversation with Marianne Williamson. It is a cry of honesty and truth, a call to return to the moral and ethical values without which we will self-destruct. Share this show. Share this post. Donate to Deep Transformation so we can get this out, so everyone will have a chance to listen to it. In this talk, Marianne comes across not as a perfect person, but as a real person, a voice crying in the wilderness. May we heed her call. Welcome to Deep Transformation, self, society, spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, Peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution.
1: I'm Roger Walsh, and our co host is John Dupuy. And with us today is Marion Williamson, who is running for the Democratic presidential nomination. And Marion has filled many roles in her life. She's an extremely successful author, published over a dozen books half of which have been on the New York Times bestseller list, and four of which have been at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. She's also done extensive charitable work, beginning with the AIDS epidemic and extending into a lot of work on the deep alleviation of poverty. She has a deep concern for inequality, and she has a deep spiritual commitment. Her life is clearly oriented around very profound values of service and aspiration for the highest good. So, Marion, welcome, and thank you so much for being with us and taking some time out of your extraordinarily busy schedule. Maybe we can just jump in and ask, your life has been so value-driven. What are the underlying values that are motivating you as you do your presidential run?
2: Well, you know, I've always said, Roger, that my life works pretty well when I practice what I preach. (laughs) I think that it's pretty well established for those of us who are students of A Course in Miracles, that there's really only one reason to be on this earth, and that's to help heal the Son of God, as the Course would say. Also, I was raised in a home central to Judaism is tikkun olam, to repair the world. I grew up in a home, people very geared, not that it was anything overtly spoken, it was just demonstrated, to try to be good people, to try to be there for others. Living lives of service. It's just, you know, the older you get, the longer your parents have been gone, the more clearly you see them. And I realize now, in ways that I couldn't have even when I was younger, they were really good people. Mm. I think I always saw that about my father, but I think it took me longer to see the sort of moral rectitude of my mother. I think daughters and mothers have their own, you know. Yeah. And by the way, I don't think my life has been any more values driven than anyone else I know. It's just that because so much of my life has been played out in public, I'm neither, you know, I'm neither as good nor as bad as I'm made out to be, you know?
1: You are a Rorschach test.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I really am a Rorschach test. That's become very, very clear to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much. Pressure exerted on presidential candidates to fill particular roles or to appear to be particular ways. How do you hold to those values in the face of face of those forces?
2: We're living in a very mean spirited time. We're living at a time where ethics and you know the word that's come up for me recently that I there's a lack of honor. Mm. Nothing has any. People don't think, what is the honorable thing to do? Mm. Would that be dishonorable? People lie so casually. People destroy people's careers so casually. People smear so casually. Repeat trash so casually. Transgress against the values and the ethics of their own chosen profession so casually. Not everyone. We're living at a time, you know, we talk about the deep division in this country. The division I see isn't between left and right nearly so much. as between decent and indecent. Hmm. And neither side of the political spectrum, by the way, in my, in my experience, has a monopoly on either one. Martin Luther King talked about a coalition of conscience. That's what I believe is inchoate and trying to form. It has nothing to do with what your politics are. Well, I mean, if you're on the fringe of something, yes. But, you know, high-minded conservative values, high-minded liberal values. There's something, social media had a lot to do with it. And, of course, Trump had a lot to do with it. So you put together, you know, there used to be some levies There used to be some guardrails. Like when we were growing up, It's not like there were never, you know, racist, bigots, anti-Semites, homophobes. I mean, we were never perfect. But it seems to me when I was growing up, there was some sense of healthy shame. There was some sense that we were like, everybody got, we were like supposed to try to be good. Now there's not even an agreement that we should try. And so you had this social media, which will give anyone a platform. Plus Trump willing to stoke all those forces for his own political purposes. So that he didn't, he did something worse than normalize the almost demonic forces in us. He actually created an argument that millions of people buy. Why not? Why not? what that's just blunt that's how people really feel what do you do with that because that's really the decline of a civilization right there so then if you are so everything is a mud bath everything is a mud bath and then when you have everything money driven you know when we were kids it was walter cronkite you know when we were kids the same company couldn't own the TV station and the radio station and the newspaper because it was codified into law, the guarantee of diversification of information. People understood the necessity for that. Today, the same company not only owns the TV station, the radio station, the newspaper, and the factory downriver, which if it's spewing carcinogens, none of those newspapers are going to report on. And they're the only employer in town. I mean, the whole thing, the commodification of our culture, the financialization of our, everybody sees it. Not everybody can put the pieces together. Which is why I felt like running for president, I could be of help because I feel and certainly you, Roger, are an example of this. We both you and I have helped to popularize the Course in Miracles. I have felt in my career that that's my talent that I can read the stuff that some people say, Oh, it's just too big a book. And I'll say, okay, I'm going to put it on seventh, seventh grade level for you. Okay. (laughs) That doesn't mean it's a substitute for reading the book. And I feel that that's exactly what I'm doing in politics, that that's my talent. And if I have any talent, that's it. I can translate. So I feel like, and of course, the tragedy of it, for me personally, and I don't want to be so grandiose to say it's a tragedy for the culture, but I think when I have, on my campaign, done what I just said, explained to people, like, let's talk about what's really happened here. And people go, wow, right, that's what's happened. Then it creates a space where we could actually transform things. And this is where you get into the way the press acts, the way political parties act. So adamant. Don't listen to her now. Not because they don't realize what I'm doing, but because they do. So when they say she's unserious, it's because they know I am serious. When they say whatever they say, you know, my father used to say the Byzantine rule. Whatever things appear to be, it's the opposite. So. America's, you know, I don't have any more information about where we're going than you two do, but it's a moment of great peril. Also, we also know that miracles happen. We also know time and space are under his control. We also know that only love is real. We also know in the space of pure love, miracles happen naturally. So all of it's true.
0: Yeah, I I had a question for you, which you answered in your first sentence. Before I said anything, so I'm just going to bounce it back. And I think this is something that's deeply concerning me and you addressed right off. But how do we put out the fires of fear, division and hatred when at least one of the parties, let's just say Trump, it's their road to power, this fear and hatred and division and constantly throwing fuel and gasoline on that fire? How do we put out the fire? And when you said a return to basic values. I think that's something that can appeal to people across the different divides in this country, like honesty, truthfulness, doing good, everything that you already mentioned. And so you had me in your first sentence. So you'd like maybe to say a little more about that.
2: In The Course in Miracles, it says, only what you are not giving can be lacking in any situation. So it's very easy and tempting for all of us to make it about Trump. I think we have to ask ourselves, how did he even get so close to the door? And also there's a line from Roosevelt, which means a lot to me. He said, we won't have to worry about a fascist takeover in this country as long as democracy delivers on its promises. The lack of values that we need to concern ourselves with is neoliberalism. So those of us who so abhor what he has done have ourselves to a great extent been complicit not in an immoral, political and economic order, but in an amoral, political and economic system. And any anytime a system is amoral, it will inevitably have immoral consequences. So we might say, This is horrible what Trump has done. Yeah, but were we making sure that people had health care? Were we making sure that people weren't living in poverty? Were we making sure that people could go to college? We ourselves, even if by our own passive permission, were on some level acquiescing to a system which, if we had been as perspicacious as we should have been, we would have recognized that's a petri dish. That's too many desperate people. And a petri dish like that becomes, it is inevitable that this gives rise to all manner of societal political dysfunction, including ideological capture by genuinely psychotic forces. Whether you're talking about here or Gaza. It's the same thing. And then the people in charge, I'm talking to you, Benjamin Netanyahu, and I'm talking to the people, many of whom are the types we know. Arrogance blinds someone. Arrogance blinds. Smug, elitist arrogance makes people blind to the dangers at hand. So, you know, when you look at how many people in America don't have universal health care, although they have it in every other advanced democracy, If we had been smart, we would have, the system would have known, you can't leave this many people out, it's dangerous. So then it's, yeah, if it hadn't been Trump, it would have been someone else. If it's not the Proud Boys, it would have been the Oath Keepers. You know, it would have. And also Trump, from a metaphysical perspective, we made a businessman God. That was the imagery that took over in this country. So from a spiritual, psychological perspective, how can we be surprised that the most perverted, ugly face of one would show up? It's, you know, this is Jungian. So only what you are not giving can be lacking in any situation. So from a Course in Miracles perspective, God has a plan. The teachers of God. And we can't know. There's a lot of stuff in the Course. You can't know. What's that stuff even at the beginning? Something in the, Roger, you probably know, I don't know, John, um, assume, I don't know if you're a student of The Course in Miracles, forgive me. Roger,
0: Roger, I am, yeah.
2: Okay. Well, Roger, something at the beginning about, it's towards the beginning about how when you work a miracle, it, it affects situations that you will never know about or hear about. Yes. You know, you have a different thought here and you don't know how it's affecting someone in Africa. We have to assume, we have to all, the plan of the teachers of God, your assignment, podcast, Books, my assignment, running for president. There is a plan for the teachers of God. And that's God's response to all of this. No one of us can fix it. And that's the tragedy to me of running for president. I don't want to call it a tragedy. Let's say that's what's so poignant to me. Running for president, I've seen this twice now. And I see it this time as much, almost more than last time. The American people are not the problem. You know, even I remember when a radio host in Las Vegas said to me, how are you going to get Joe Sixpack to go along with what you're saying? I said, this country elected Abraham Lincoln. The American people are not the problem. The American people, there's a decency. I'm not saying we're better than anybody else. We're not. But we're decent. We're you you know, once again, Course in Miracles, people hear you at the level you speak to them from. You speak to the nobility and people, the nobility and people respond. The problem, and it is a problem, is a sclerotic, corrupted political system that sits on top of the will of the people like a lid on a pot, and they push down. They don't want to hear from the people. They don't want to hear from me. They don't want to hear they've decided it's Joe. How's that any different than what's happening on the other side? So
1: you've said a lot, Marion, I just want to emphasize a couple of things. One, you pointed to the fact that we can rail against various groups and politicians or whoever. But in the end, it always comes back to what can I do? What's the specific contribution I can make?
2: And that's the course, right? Only what you were getting. And also it says something else, Roger, that has been... A big one for me, not only in terms of the country, but it's a big one for me with what I'm dealing with right now, even, where it says you have to take 100 percent responsibility for your experience. And the price you pay if you do not do that is that you will not be able to change it.
1: Yes. Responsibility is responsibility, the ability to respond and and choose. Yes.
2: And one of the reasons I wanted to be president is I I thought I could help America look in the mirror. Our own policies have caused so much damage domestically and abroad. Yeah, National atonement is an order. You can't blame Donald Trump for everything.
1: No, good point. I also want to emphasize something that you said briefly but so important that the way in which we, and particularly you in your role as running for president, speak to people is so important. And you, you mentioned speaking to the nobility, expecting that from people, and that people respond to our expectations. There's a, there's, that's a basic psychological principle. And when so much, as you said, has been degraded in our society, in our communication, in social media, etc., it is so easy, and it's a characteristic of demagogues, to speak to the lower to the less than noble, to the divisiveness, to the fear, the anger, the greed, et cetera, et cetera. And so I just resonate when you say, speak to the nobility, and that will, to some extent, evoke and call that forth. Beautiful.
2: The problem is, that has always been my experience as a speaker in A Course in Miracles. The problem when you're trying to do it politically is that there are so many forces, vicious forces, at work to make sure people don't hear you. Don't listen to her now. People that I'm not gonna go hear her. Because there are people who know, if you go hear her, you might be, I mean, it's almost like witch archetype. And then even if you like me, oh, she got to you. Ooh, don't let her do that. I mean, it's almost like something out of the Middle Ages or something. It's her witchcraft. I mean, they don't say that, but that's almost the feeling. And then what people can do in the media to misquote you or take a one sentence. Like, you have no idea. You know how in The Course in Miracles about sickness being an illusion? So in my first book, A Return to Love, I talk about the whole thing in The Course in Miracles, sickness is an illusion. Do you know how that's been used to damage me politically?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: But then, Roger? I don't know. We only need to go into some of that. We'll go into some of that privately.
1: No,
0: it's very important. I can tell by what you're saying that you, this is experience talking here. You've been attacked in vicious ways and I've even seen examples of it. And And how do you deal with that, Marianne, and keep going?
2: Well, you know, I certainly see it as the biggest spiritual crucible of my life. You know, as my... You know, my role as an author and teacher of The Course in Miracles, listen, I was never everybody's favorite. Nobody is. But running for president waking up every morning, insult, smear, lies, mischaracterizations, the ugliest things you can imagine from not just out there, but people close. I mean, so the way I'm seeing it, correct me if I'm wrong, what a an opportunity to forgive myself and others, because you know what, this is what I've come to, and this is why it's a pretty hard moment for me. If I, even with the way people have treated me, and I have been, it's abuse, it's like online bullying, you know? If I had built a strong enough campaign, I would have been able to ride out that turbulence so, as a Course in Miracles student, you know, it's all what are you not giving? If I had, so there's a lot of what shoulda, coulda, where I was not wise. I hired someone I shouldn't have hired. I didn't hire someone I should have hired. I spent the money on this one. I should have spent the money on that. So, you have to own it. All that stuff and that prayer go back to the moment in which you did not allow spirit to dictate. You could go back to that moment now. He will un- undo all consequences of the wrong decision if I will let him. I don't really know how to answer that question except to say I'm trying to practice the Course in Miracles and to remember that only love is real. And also, I do believe this. It's leading to something. I don't think it's realistic to think it's leading to my being president of the United States at this moment. But I will be and already feel that I am to some extent A different person, and hopefully a better person. You know that old cliche: you get better or you get better. I will either constrict. You know, I love how in the course it doesn't say it this way, but it does basically make the point that the only real failure is what you fail to learn from. Right, right, Roger. There's that part. Some of your biggest failures you thought were success. Some of your biggest successes thought were the only real failure here is if I don't become a better person from it.
1: So this is taking, there's, there's a tradition in India of karma yoga, using one's work and action in the world as one's spiritual practice. And what I hear is you're using this incredibly intense, perhaps <laughs> ultimately intense activity of running for president as a spiritual practice. What I see as a beauty in that is that it's a constant call to you, to come from and to speak to and respond from the best place you can.
2: And, you know, that has been as true for me in my political forays as it has been true of any other aspect of my career. And when people have erroneously believed that I went into politics as a divergence, No, this was what I felt was my assignment. You know, Gandhi said, is not politics a part of Dharma too? Yes. He said politics should be sacred. You know, one of the things running is a lot of times I'm speaking in spiritual centers or in yoga studios or in wellness studios. It's been true in the last two weeks. And you go in and people are ready for a different conversation. And having a political conversation within that space is magnificent, magnificent, and it's the only space out of which real healing will come at this point. Yeah,
1: and I appreciate what you said about your role as effectively a translator for bringing an understanding of the enormous complexity of the issues we're dealing with, and let's face it, the issues of our time are the most complex humankind has ever faced, and For the first time in human history, all the major threats to our survival, even as a species and civilization, let alone as a coherent society and democracy, are human caused, which means that we need not only that at some level, what we call our social and global problems are uh, symptoms. They're symptoms of our individual, collective, psychological, and spiritual dysfunction and immaturity. And so what is really called for, but it's really recognized and what I see you doing, is addressing both the symptoms, the problems, and their underlying psychological, spiritual roots. And that's a rare and much-needed contribution. And whether you succeed or not in becoming president, and hopefully you will, but even if not, then... There's an example, there's a modeling, and there's a a pointing to a richness of thought and integration that is so desperately needed in these when when divisiveness rules.
2: Absolutely. The 20th century was a very mechanistic mindset. The world is a big machine. If you don't like what you see, you just tweak the pieces of the machine, right? There's a British physicist, James Jeans who said, it turns out the world is not one big machine. The world is one big thought. The 21st century, far more holistic, far more whole person. And you see this in the younger generation, much more openness to the discussion of root cause and not just symptoms, much more of a realization. You know, it's that old Einstein thing. We will not solve the problems of the world from the level of thinking we were at when we created them. All of the political elite, the political powers in this country today, it's very transactional, just treat the symptom. The conversation that will move us forward is transformational. Deep transformation is the title of your podcast. You've got to address root cause. And what I have always felt made me the person to do this was the work I've done with the course. You have to say to your country, what are you not giving? Where do you need to atone? It's the same thing.
1: Well, there's so much we could get into here. I'm thinking where to to go. Maybe just come to something very, one very concrete issue. And that is, you've spoken eloquently about the current crisis of the Israeli-Hamas conflict, the war, this tragedy that's been unfolding over the last several months. I'd love to hear you speak, you know, share some of your context and say what I've really appreciated about the way you've presented and discussed this issue is your capacity for holding multiple perspectives and multiple sides and honoring and acknowledging the suffering on all sides. Just love to hear you speak to this.
2: Well, you're so right. The Course in Miracles says God does not give you victory in battle. God lifts you above the battlefield. It also says in the course, the holiest spot on earth is where an ancient hatred becomes a present love. And when it comes to Jews and Muslims, so to remember, there was an ancient love. I mean, historically, going back many, many centuries, Jews and Muslims got along better than either one of them got along with Christians. So this is, you know, this is a modern aberrational horror. I wrote an article in Newsweek magazine a couple years ago about unprocessed trauma in both Israelis and Palestinians. The Israelis that having been traumatized by the Nazis and the Palestinians that having been traumatized by the Israelis. And that if your own trauma is unprocessed, you are incapable of being present for the suffering of another human being. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, everything I just said magnified by so much. So the cause of real peace building was, on one hand, put back so much, although it was put back by Benjamin Netanyahu. His policies of the last 15 years, the continuing occupation, the settlements, the siege and blockade of Gaza. So now, you know, The Course in Miracles says it's not up to you what you learn. It's merely up to you whether you learn through joy or through pain. The pain now. So on an external level, and by the way, I think that you will appreciate this. There's a line, if you don't know it, from Martin Luther King where he's talking about politics and he's talking about desegregating the American South. He says, the desegregation of the American South is the political externalization of the goal of the civil rights movement. But the ultimate goal is the establishment of the beloved community. Mm. And that so applies. You know, what do we have to do externally? We've got to establish a two-state solution. Some people say, oh, that's a dead idea. Like, okay, what's your plan for one state? I mean, these people who Their level of hatred and fear of each other from a distance is so great. Well, you're going to just say, Okay, let's just be one state and everybody be happy. I mean, what do we you know, it's such a setup for bloody civil war, unlike anything we've ever seen. But the work has got to be done on that level. And the sadness to me is how much of that work was being done but not on the level of governmental forces, not on the level of Netanyahu, not on the level of, Ham- obviously Hamas, not on the level of the Palestinian Authority. But I've been there, I know. You know, There's this. there are these schools in Israel called the hand-in-hand schools where little children are taught both Arabic and Hebrew, and they're taught both people's history, and they're taught both people's holidays, and about both people's religion, these little children, and it's so beautiful, and there are two teachers in every classroom and so forth. Now, so I believe we obviously need a ceasefire in this war. You know, I was reading they say that they have now disabled a lot of the military infrastructure of Hamas in the north. But the cost, the human cost, is such that whatever danger they got rid of, they've created so much more.
1: Yes, yes, and clearly seeding the, the roots for further hatred, further conflict, and ongoing aggression on perhaps on both sides. And we had uh, we interviewed shortly after the Hamas massacre of Israelis. We interviewed an Israeli therapist who had lost family members, friends, etc. And he was in tears and yet still compassionate for the suffering of...
2: Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of the people who were living right there, including some of the people who were murdered and held hostages, were the peacenik types. Mm. I mean, those kids at a music festival. Yeah.
0: I'm reading currently or listening to it. My eyes give out a, after about an hour and a half these days. And... Uh, Biography, a new biography of Abraham Lincoln. And
2: which one is it called There Was Light by John Mitchum that came out? No,
0: it's not. Oh, and really? I, I, oh. don't, I didn't think I was going to mention this. But what I, he's my favorite president and Republican, I might add. But what I feel, I feel there's a lot of similarities between you and Abraham Lincoln because he was continually growing. When he was running for president as the president. He took on the suffering of our country, both sides, and realized what had to be done. But there was a continual growth and there was an honesty and admitting when he was wrong. And I just never had a conversation like this or heard a conversation with somebody who's running for president who is so deeply honest. And so deeply I can feel the pain that you're suffering and the pain that you put yourself in by putting yourself in this position. You really are taking on all these different divisions and all this hatred and all this stuff and trying to bring us back together in a way that that is very similar to Abraham Lincoln, similar to his greatness. And I just want to say it's Marianne, it's very moving.
2: Well, thank you. Abraham Lincoln lived at a time where human authenticity was prided rather than derided within politics. So I'm not doing anything that people don't do. It's just that politics is this box of toxic inauthenticity. Because if you are going to be real, if you are going to be dedicated to growth, on any given day, there could be 16 gotcha moments. Oh, then you admit, blank, blank, blank. Yeah. And that becomes the headline. Yes. So you really, when you are in this field, you understand how politicians become wooden. You understand how they talk gobbledygook. They're afraid to talk honestly. <laughs> I'm not excusing it. And it needs the fresh waters of people who come from worlds like ours. This is part of the problem. The founders, the vision was so profound that you could be anybody, even president. You know, the the Constitution says that in order to be president, you have to have been born here, you have to be 35 or older, and you have to have lived here for 14 years. It doesn't say you have to have been a lawyer, congressman, senator, governor. Because we're leaving it to every generation to determine for itself what skill set, what quality of person, do you think in your time is most necessary to face the challenges you're confronted with? This idea—it's very profound. Because the three of us would agree that we don't just need another technocrat or political car mechanic. The problem is we're on the wrong road. But people who represent deeper questioning, deeper inquiry are, at least in my case, mocked to write it. Although, on the other hand, you've got Bobby Kennedy now quoting saints and everybody's how how wonderful that is. If I go anywhere close to anything like that, he's oh, cuckoo and crazy. Yeah.
1: And Aaron, you may you may have already answered this, but if there's anything else you'd like to add, you've spoken about and clearly demonstrated your that this has been an incredible learning process from which, which you have dedicated yourself to you've used in addition to running as a service and trying to make the best contribution you can you're also using it to learn and grow and mature but is there anything else you would you have learned from running that it feels really important for our country to know
2: you know What I've learned on a personal level, more than I knew, I've learned two things. One is important for me to know on a personal level, and one is important for the country to know. What I've learned on a personal level is that not everyone is nice on levels I don't think I did know. What I've learned that the country needs to know is how many people in this country are nice good decent noble you know you were talking john about reading about lincoln have you finished the book yet not yet okay so you haven't gotten to the second election yet right no okay so in the second election people in the north first of all as you do know already at this time we all knew they thought this was going to last six weeks right? It was four years, over 600,000 dead, the most horrifying, right? And for the second election, people were saying to Lincoln, enough already. And his opponent was saying, let's say to the South, keep your slaves, just come home. Come back into the union. We'll let you keep your institution of slavery. Just come back. That's the perfect compromise. And obviously, people in the North, people in the South weren't voting in that election. People in the North were understandably saying, why should my husband, my son, my brother have to die because they have slaves? We don't have slaves. I'm in Massachusetts. Why do my men have to die for that? So understandable question. But Lincoln felt that the Declaration of Independence was our vision statement, our North Star, all men are created equal. And he saw the Declaration as our eternal rebuke against forces of tyranny and oppression. So he felt that if they come back and have slavery, then we've kept the union together, but we've hollowed out the heart and the soul and the purpose of it all right so he expected to lose think what it means that he won that election it means millions of people chose against their own best interests so that the slaves could be free it's so profound that they reelected elected him
0: that's not said enough
2: and if you read the second inaugural, you know everybody talks about the Gettysburg Address, which is obviously one, I mean goes without saying. but I think that second inaugural, and also Roger, I, don't, I mean the, the spirituality, and you know, his he saw everything. one of the things I learned reading there was light, which I can't tell it was a great book, but I did learn some things about him I didn't know there, but last year, is how much of the whole conversation around slavery in the Civil War was biblical because the Bible was so important to people at that time. So the South saying, the Bible says we can have slaves. And the North saying, the Bible says we can't have slaves. So it's fascinating. And if you read the second inaugural, how deeply spiritual his whole conceptualization of all this was, their reverence for the Declaration of Independence, their reverence for the Bible, these were people who, and not just Lincoln, and we have so declined
1: yes yes and i feel both sad to at the contrast and i feel both reminded of the inspiration of some of our history and uh and the great people who have upheld values in our country and i deep respect for you in queuing to that that path of trying as best you can to bring that bring the, those values back into our public discourse and our political life and our, and our country and culture. Marion, I know your time is extremely valuable and we're coming to the end of the 45 minutes that you have. Is there anything else you'd like to say?
2: Well, I'm just grateful to have had the experience of talking to you guys. I hope we can do it again sometime. You know, another line from the course, an idea grows stronger when it is shared. And so the work that you're doing on your podcast, anytime any of us, you know, once again, deep transformation, you know, this is ameliorative for the culture and all the ways that you and I know about As as students of the course, we don't know who might be listening. And so thank you. I'm honored to have been here. It's just so wonderful when I'm at a time and within an experience where cheap and shallow conversation so the order of the day, even among people who either know better or want, you know, sometimes with these people, I feel like you go to therapy, you go to AA, you whatever. Why are you pretending that politics has to be about something else? So thank you for, thank you. Just thank you for having me on. I hope I can be on again sometime. I've been a fan of yours. Roger for a long time and it's lovely to meet you John and I hope that I hope that everything goes beautiful with you and thank you for having me and I hope we can do it again sometime
0: I would ask our listeners to share this conversation with everybody they can post it get it out there that's incredible thank you thing that you just gifted us with Marianne thank you very much
2: thank you thank you so much guys have a beautiful day much love to you thank you thank you bye bye
0: Thank you very much for being a part of this conversation. We hope that you were moved as we are moved being part of it ourselves. We'd also like to say that this is being funded by Roger and myself, it comes out of our pockets. So if you would like to help us to mainly to get this podcast out to more people because the bigger audience have, which is steadily growing but the more people we can reach and the more marketing we can do, the more positive effect we can have on the world. So we've done that a couple of ways but we'd like you to buy us a cup of coffee. Very simple and I do that podcasts that I support and I find it very satisfying. So thank you for your help. Thank you for your presence and thank you for all you are and all you do. We love you.